This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome back. This is In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, joined today by Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. And this morning, we're going to talk about judicial training in Mississippi. So if you have a question about what makes our judges think they can judge the law or what instructions they receive, give us a call at one 877 mpb ring That number is one 672 7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It is great uh, to be here and great to have uh, Justice Pierce with us. Uh, he is a published author, a former trial judge, and uh, also former justice of the Supreme Court, and uh, really, really uh, doing a great job with our Mississippi Judicial College. I'm so glad that we are lucky enough to have him. And uh, Justice Pierce, I understand you're the director of the Mississippi Judicial College. Uh, Good morning, Liz. That's correct. And I appreciate uh, the opportunity to be here with you this morning and to discuss the uh, workings of the Judicial College and look forward to, uh, to your questions. Well, we're so glad that you're here. Well, so working backwards, right now you're the director of the Mississippi Judicial College. You've been a former Mississippi Supreme Court justice. What about before that? Before that, I was a Chancery Court judge in Mississippi. And um, actually, before that, I served in the Mississippi legislature. And as I was listening to the news and to the, uh, I guess, the um, plugging of NPR this morning, I recall very vividly presenting the budget for uh, public radio in Mississippi as part of my duties as chairman of education back a few years ago. So uh, so I've had some unique experiences, and I've been very fortunate in my career. Well, we're glad that you have had such a, a variety of experiences that you can bring and pass on that information to to our judges. So tell us about the Mississippi Judicial College. The Mississippi Judicial College was actually formed um, – Back in 1970, as a part, as a first full-time state-dedicated effort in our country to train judges, uh, Noah Sweat, a former judge, um, it was his idea. He received a $90,000 grant, uh, and uh, and the Judicial College was born. And so, in 2020, we will celebrate 50 years of judicial education in Mississippi. Um, I just recently went to the National Association of State Judicial Educators, and I can tell you that Mississippi's Judicial College is doing fantastic work and uh, organizationally and uh, over the years has developed uh, the training program that I think is one of the best in the country. Well, you said that so fast it kind of went by me. Did you say that we were the first? We were the first. We were the first that uh, in Mississippi that dedicated a full-time arm of judicial education. And then throughout the country, um, you know, the Judicial College here at Ole Miss is a division of the law school. 
Uh, we are funded through an appropriation to the state court education fund. Uh, in the past, those monies were assessments on various tickets and, and such as that. Uh, but uh, a couple years ago, the legislature redirected those special funds, and now we are a uh, general fund appropriated agency through the IHL subsidiary budget. And uh, but to your original point, we were first in this in this endeavor, and. To my knowledge, currently, North Carolina, Georgia, New Mexico, uh, and Mississippi have the model like we do. Other states have different models for judicial education. And, uh, of course, I'm partial, but I think ours is the best. Well, it it seems when you think after the fact, you know, no offense, I haven't given much call, uh, much thought to how our judges are trained, but for someone to, I guess, step around the bench, um, it, it it would seem logical that there would need to be training and and passing down of information. Is it mostly uh, former uh, judges just passing down information, or what what what's the curriculum? What is it like? Whether well, different states do it differently, there are some that had judicial experience, uh, but uh, in some it's it's a blend of of some legal experience with education. Uh, here in Mississippi, um, I sat through many years of judicial education provided by the Judicial College, and uh, I thought it would be an opportunity to really elevate the training uh, for us here at Ole Miss to our various constituents and stakeholders to, to take this position. Um, I've been here almost two years now. It's hard to believe. But, uh, but I'm very proud of the fact that, for example, in the uh, 2016 annual report of the judiciary, Chief Justice Waller pointed out that um, the good work that the Judicial College has been doing, and we continue to try to uh, elevate our training and make sure our judges, and not only our judges, but the court personnel that work uh, in the judicial system have the best available training out there. And and so, um, so we're excited about a very busy 2018. We will have, I think, 17 trainings throughout our state. Uh, we will probably see over 1,400 individuals come in and out of those training sessions this year. So you're saying judicial education, so it's not just the however many judges, couple dozen judges. Uh, who, who all would participate in some of the training? Well, first of all, from the judicial side, uh, we train our Supreme Court, our Court of Appeals judges, which are a total of 19 of them, our circuit judges, uh Chancery judges, and there are over 100 of them. County court judges, we have 31, I believe, at last count. And then, of course, our justice court judges, there are 197 of them throughout our 82 counties. And then over 200 municipal court judges in our state. Um, we also train our youth court referees. So uh, we have uh, the way our system is set up. Chancery court in Mississippi is responsible for minors' business, and that includes youth court. But several years ago, when the legislature wisely, I think, created county courts uh, in those counties, that there are county courts which you have to meet a certain requirement to be able to, to have a county court. Uh, you have 21 counties that have county court judges, and those county court judges are full-time judges, and they hear youth court as well. But in the more rural areas, uh, there are 61 counties that have youth court referees, and those are local lawyers appointed by the senior chancellor or the chancery judges in that district to hear youth court. So we will train those youth court judges. We will also provide training to court administrators, court reporters, 
your circuit clerks, chancery clerks, uh, justice court clerks, municipal clerks, uh, and, and so on. So we want to make sure that when an individual in Mississippi comes into contact with its court system, that every person that, that or every office that that person is exposed to is trained properly and has the latest and, and best training available. Fantastic. Well, we're speaking today uh, with Justice Randy Pierce, who's the director of the Mississippi Judicial College. If you have a question about how our uh, judicial personnel are trained, you can give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. I guess most all of us from <clears throat> the first time uh, you you start taking a civics class or you watch the news, we're all quite aware of the executive branch. Uh, we know who our governor is. People learn who the president is. Then we learn so much about the legislative branch, especially uh, you know right now with our <coughs> right now with the uh, budgets. But so <coughs> sorry. <laughs> <coughs> Tell us more Bless about you. the judicial branch. <laughs> well, the um, um, it's always interesting to me when we do have the discussion with, with kids, and I enjoy, by the way, speaking to uh, high school kids, particularly middle school and even elementary school children. I think it's important for us to stress at all levels of education the uh, basic civics, um, which include the three branches of government. You know, the legislative branch in Congress gets – and, and on the national level in our state legislature gets uh, uh, most of the attention and, and, and the executive branch as well, led by the governor uh, and the president, respectively. And uh, on the judiciary, um, I've always viewed the judicial branch as, as the quiet branch. But nonetheless, uh, thanks to Marbury versus Madison uh, many years ago, where the, the United States Supreme Court established that, you know, the judiciary should be independent, but also uh, essentially breaks the tie out there when there's a conflict within the branches or there's an area of the law that needs to be interpreted. When I was on the Mississippi Supreme Court, I, I recall uh, an incident regarding, uh, I think it was the governor had created, uh, had to, pursuant to statute, uh, cut certain budgets, and he was required to do that. And so once that occurred, though, um, there is a constitutional provision that does not allow, for example, uh, judicial pay to be decreased during that term. And so I was on the Supreme Court, and we basically found that uh, that the governors, even though the law said you have to cut this, uh, did not have the authority. And uh, Governor Barber, I'll never forget, I read in the paper um, the next day or two he's, after the Supreme Court ruled, he said, you know what, they're doing their jobs, I'm doing mine, and by the way, who who will I appeal to? And uh, so the, the Supreme Court, I think, and, and any uh, appellate court, uh, certainly is there for for a uh, to keep balance within the three branches, but at the same time, uh, have to be re- uh, aware of the fact that that we are there to settle disputes and not create disputes. And so, an independent judiciary is so critical to to uh, the well being of of our government and our society. Well, and I mean, know, oh, I'm go, sorry. Go ahead, Professor Gershon. No, I was going to say, in, in countries that were uh, communist countries, they did not have an independent judiciary, and in fact. The judges reported to typically a ministry of justice, and they could be removed if, if uh, the leaders of the party did not like the decisions they were making. And so that that is the wrong direction for our country to go. We need an independent judiciary. 
And I remember when I was in the legislature, if, if for example, if my side on an issue um, was being criticized either by the press or by the other political party, I could step out and call a press conference and respond or issue a press release. Well, uh, judges can't do that. Judges rule on the law, and then as people comment and criticize or praise, you just have to stay out of that and, and allow uh, the uh, dialogue to continue outside of what you do. In other words, judges speak through their opinions, and, and, and that's it. And it's important. You know, we all are um, creatures of, of social media these days, and, and uh, I've asked Judge Kenny Griffiths on the Court of Appeals uh, to present this year at all of our conferences um, the ethical considerations of judges and the use of social media. But uh, I looked, uh, of course, this weekend. I'm a Saints fan, so I'm still heartbroken over what happened weekend before last. But um, there was a one of these gifts or memes going around where the head referee congratulated Tom Brady after the game. And, uh, of course, a lot of people with conspiracy theories were, were alleging that that shows you that there was some favoritism. And so, but I, I thought about that as a judicial educator. Uh, judges shouldn't and referees should, should not congratulate winners or, or, or in any contest. You, you're independent. You have to rule and, 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 and move out of the way. And uh, otherwise, you risk um, uh, someone losing confidence in what you're doing. And judges won't know that unless they're educated about it. So when we come back from the break, we're going to continue our very interesting discussion about the Mississippi Judicial College with our guest, Justice Randy Pierce. So if you have any questions, uh, I see we have one from Hancock County. We'll get to you right after the break. If you have a question about the laws concerning our judicial college and how our judges are uh, educated, or about the judicial branch at all, we'd love for you to give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live, but so if you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, and our guest today is Justice Randy Pierce of the Mississippi Judicial College, and this morning we're talking about the education of judicial personnel. Professor Gershon, I'm so excited that uh, you've you've found this for our listeners. I think this will be very educational. Well, I'm really excited about this. And can I also uh, offer something else for our listeners, which is that next week, uh, on Wednesday, January the 31st, 
from 1230 to 145 at the law school. The University of Mississippi will be hosting its eighth annual uh, MLK Day commemoration panel. And this year, the discussion will be about slavery, civil rights, and the legacy of Dr. King. It should be a great panel. It'll be at our Weems Auditorium. And again, that's January 31st from 1230 to 145. It's open to the public. Well, we're so glad we'll put a link to that also on this show, which will be uh, you'll be able to listen to as a podcast or listen to online later today. And the MPB events calendar, if you go to mpbonline.org, on the front page, about how, a little, little bit ways down on the right, there's events. And uh, we have lots of events from around the state, and we'll be sure to put that uh, MLK celebration on the 31st. So uh, let's go. We've got a call. Uh, we're so glad that uh, Lisa from Hancock County has been hanging on. Uh, go ahead with your question. Uh, yes, I have a question about um, custody disputes and a divorce. I know that the Albright factors are considered, but I was kind of wondering what training do judges receive or what guidance do they receive on how to make those decisions, whether it's you know, best to have joint custody or, or primary custody to one parent, or what, what kind of training do they receive in that area? Thank you, Lisa, for that question. Very good question. And, you know, in, in the day of podcasts, um, you know, I love listening to podcasts and I listen to several on my travels around the state. Um, I've always thought uh, that it would make a very interesting podcast to, for example, see if I could find the, the children involved in the Albright case and, um, and to see um, and, and perhaps interview them about uh, the uh, fact that that case now is the case that judges uh, use for direction on custody and, and particularly in chancery court. And so what we do uh, is make sure that our judges are aware of what the law is. For example, in addition to these physical trainings that we have, we also have manuals that we develop. We have bench, bench manuals for all of our judges and include in that um, all the various uh, types of cases that they would hear, including custody. And so uh, we make sure the judges are aware of those factors. Any new cases that the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals, and and we'll talk in a moment about how, uh, hopefully if we have time, how the Court of Appeals uh, and why the Court of Appeals uh, rules on most of your custody cases. But we we, uh, certainly, uh, if there are any new uh, cases we make sure that they are aware of those. Uh, the Supreme Court hands down its cases on on each week on Thursdays. The Court of Appeals on Tuesdays. Uh, we monitor those and we make sure of that. This Saturday, um, upcoming, uh, the Chancery judges throughout our state are having a midwinter meeting here in Oxford at the law school, and we will meet on Saturday and we will provide some additional training to those judges that come up for that. Um, but custody. Having sat in that chair for four years and before being elected to the Supreme Court, those are tough, and uh, those were very tough. And, and I can remember many times uh, reflecting on a particular Albright factor and just trying to decide, uh, am I making the right decision, and, and, and it was tough. And I can remember, and I tell this story, I had a, I had a young young child in my office because she was too young for – for me, in my opinion, to put on the bench, I mean, put on the stand for traditional testimony. So had her back in my office and was going through in my questions to her, the different Albright factors. And one question, she had long, beautiful hair. And I remember 
asking her, I said, you know what, have you ever had to, to, to uh, vomit? And, and I hate to say that on the radio, <laughs> but, and she said, yes, sir. And I said, and I asked her a simple question that just, that to me, impacted me. And I said, who holds your hair back when, when you're having to do that? And, and, and she told me her mother did. And those are tough. Each case is unique. And I had a little statement on my bench that said, if I ever treat the next case just like the one before that I had before, then remove me from the bench. And, and that was my, my little prayer, if you will. And, and so those are tough. We just try our best to make sure that, that we keep those factors in front of them and, and, and to remind uh, folks, particularly in Chancery Court, that oftentimes you're seeing people that have had no exposure to the judicial system, and they're seeing it for the first time. And when the kids are involved, it's a scary place. And, uh, and so we want to make sure our judges have the temperament. Uh, and, and, and in my opinion, uh, when we're talking about, you know, this year is a judicial election year, and, um, you know, uh, judges are required to be lawyers, and, and there are certain requirements obviously there. But temperament is so important to our bench and to our judges. And uh, I probably haven't done a very good job answering your question, but we, we do try to remind them that the bottom line is when it comes to child custody, it's not a formula. You know, Albright was not meant to be a formula that judges plug in facts and spits out who should get custody. Everything ought to be and should be about what's in the best interest of the child or the children. And we stress that at every conference. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Lisa, for calling in from Hancock County. Uh, Professor Gershon, that just gave me an idea. I, I don't want to – I, I want to know what the Albright case is, but I figured that would probably take up the rest of the half hour, so we should probably do a whole show on on custody. But, uh, uh, Judge Pierce, you did mention Chancery Court. Uh, go ahead and, and before we get to our next call from Jackson, go ahead and tell us the difference. I, know, I think most people know what the Supreme Court is, but what are the other types of court judges? Well, under our Constitution, of course, we have the Supreme Court, which was created. Mississippi's had four constitutions, 1817, 1832, uh, 1868 post-Civil War, and then, of course, the current a constitution we're operating under, which was adopted in 1890. Uh, in our constitution, um, we also have circuit court and chancery court. Circuit court is the court of general jurisdiction. Uh, it handles everything from um, most criminal matters uh, and and uh, also uh, malpractice or any type of negligence case and things of that nature. Chancery court is a court of limited jurisdiction pursuant to the constitution. Uh, Chancery courts hear matters of divorce by statute from the legislature, but also includes matters of equity, uh, matters of, um, of, um, for example, in Chancery court, there's not a jury, but the the judge will hear um, certain specified uh, issues in our Constitution, like annexation, for example. Um, And so Chancery court judges and circuit judges are, are lawyers that with with a limp with a five years experience that um, that serve in those capacities the biggest difference to me uh, other than the subject matter jurisdiction of each court uh, is the fact that in circuit court you uh, have a juries in chancery court um, uh, you, you do not in most cases so so that's your biggest difference and what about county court judges 
uh, county court judges, um, as I said earlier, uh, in order to qualify for a county court judge, the county has to reach a certain size. The legislature has created the authority for counties to, to, to come together and to have county court judges. Like Hancock County, uh, that Lisa just called from, recently uh, is our newest county court uh, in our state, um, and they had um, – uh, the, to me, the local leadership is commended for uh, the local officials down in Hancock County uh, for taking that step and establishing a full-time county court judge. But county court judges, they have concurrent jurisdiction with Chancery and Circuit Court if it's a f- matter involving money up to $200,000. Uh, and um, uh, But they, they have also some limited uh, criminal jurisdiction. Uh, and as I said earlier, too, county court judges in those counties will uh, hear youth court. Well, we're so glad that we've got a call, uh, Philip from Jackson. And if you would like to give us a call, we're talking about the judicial branch and how our judges and uh, our judicial personnel are cha- are trained. Our number is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Thank you for calling in today, Philip. Go ahead. Hey, uh, my question is about um, more about the Supreme, I guess the Supreme Court and politics. I noticed that whenever we have a change of hand from one one um, party to another party, they tend to put the Supreme Court, court judge that they would like to have or that kind of leans their way. But I was understanding that uh, judges are kind of bound by what the what laws are on the books at that very moment and uh, – um, how? Why does it matter so much that um, a judge has to be affiliated or connected to a, a particular party when it comes to the Supreme Court? Philip, that's an excellent question, and, and I, I'm going to answer it in two ways. I'm going to talk, number one, I think perhaps uh, your question may be uh, in the United States Supreme Court realm where the president makes those appointments, like Neil Gorsuch, for example, when President Trump made that appointment in the United States Senate, um, affirmed uh, – confirmed him, and uh, and now he sits on the United States Supreme Court. So uh, there's no question that when a particular president, whether it's a Democrat or Republican, uh, generally uh, that president has the ability to, to appoint uh, whomever, she, you know, here, and hopefully she in one, one of these days chooses to appoint. And, um, and so those just happen to be from a philosophy uh, that's similar to what that appointing authority is. Uh, but regardless of who appoints you as a judge uh, you know, on the federal level or in Mississippi, if you're appointed by the governor and then subsequently elected, and we'll talk about that in a moment, how judges are chosen in Mississippi, then the then judges all have an oath of office that that is taken before uh, assuming office, and that is to uphold the laws of uh, – to, to the Constitution of the United States, the Constitution of the State of Mississippi for a Mississippi judge, and and uh, follow the laws uh, thereof. And so, uh, for example, when I was a Chancery Court judge, I was appointed by uh, Governor Barber. Then I was subsequently elected to a full term and then elected to the Mississippi Supreme Court. And when I was on the Supreme Court, uh, Governor Barber, um, uh, there we had an issue with pardons that many of your listeners may remember that came before the Supreme Court, or whether or not Governor Barber had the authority to uh, issue certain pardons. And um, and I was on a three-member minority on the court that, that found, and at least in my dissent, 
that the governor had did not have the authority that that he exercised completely um and even though he appointed me to the chancery bench in my opinion i followed the law now i'll say this uh six other members of the court disagreed with my interpretation of the law and they won on that issue but i i, I you know speaking of governor barber years ago i was at the neshoba county fair and he was talking about um I think this was when he was running for a second term, if I remember correctly. And he made a statement that, that I've used from time to time, and I'll use it again today regarding judges. You know, occasionally you'll see a judge in the, in the newspaper or an issue in the newspaper that reflects poorly perhaps on, on the judiciary. Uh, but uh, Governor Barber made the statement that, you know, Mississippi has, you know, we've heard a lot of criticism, but the press does not necessarily report on planes that land safely. And when I look at our judges across the state, and uh, we have some tremendous judges that are right now as we speak are, are making sound decisions that are following the law, and, and those plans are landing safely. Unfortunately, um, th that doesn't get talked about a whole lot. But, but uh, Philip, back to your point, in Mississippi, uh, judges, and as well as the federal bench, they're required to take an oath of office, which sometimes means that uh, you have to make it follow the law even if your personal beliefs do not reflect that and um, but there's a whole episode of this show that could be dedicated on the difference between what would be considered a liberal judge and a conservative judge but uh, judges aren't perfect judges are human but uh, the reality is all judges are required to follow the law Thank you well, for your uh, question, Philip. We uh, we appreciate you calling in. And when we come back from the break, we can take your call also. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. This is so interesting, delving down into learning about uh, our judicial branch and the education of judicial personnel with our guest, Justice Randy Pierce. You can also send us an email if you have a question to legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Gershon is our expert, and we're joined today by our guest, Justice Randy Pierce, director of the Mississippi Judicial College, and we're talking about how our judicial personnel are educated. Uh, Professor Gershon, has this gotten you all excited? Are you going to uh, sign up, uh, uh, try to uh, run for a judicial uh, position? You know, Liz, I really appreciate our judges, and uh, but no, thank you. I think uh, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing, but I really do appreciate what judges do. You know, they don't 
they don't always make a lot of money either. I think that's one thing that people don't realize is there's not, uh, as public servants, they're not, you know, paid as high as private lawyers a lot of times. And, uh, it's, and it's a lot of work. They have cases that deal with uh, criminal law and, and family law and things that are not always uh, comfortable to make those decisions. So I give them a lot of credit. Well, Judge Pierce, let's let's play suppose. Let's see if uh, suppose that uh, Professor Richard Gershon wanted to become a judge. What are his options as far as what would he do? Uh, do you whisper in someone's ear? What do you have to run for? You'd mentioned you were appointed but then elected. Tell us a little bit about where our judges come from. The uh Judges this year, every four years for our trial judges, that circuit, chancery, and county court judges are up for election. This year happens to be one of those years. And so I think it's the first Friday, around May 8th or May 9th, is the deadline. So if a person meets the qualifications, which essentially is a lawyer that uh, over a certain age that has five years' experience, which Judge, uh, I said, I was almost going to say Judge Gershon, but <laughs> Professor Gershon. Uh, sought to uh, to run, he meets the qualifications, and you simply go to the Secretary of State's office if you're running for a circuit or chancery, or if you're running for want to run for county court judge, you would go to your local circuit clerk's office, and you would qualify. And then um, at that point, um, you know, it's, it was always awkward for me. I ran for the legislature twice, and and was fortunate enough to win both those elections. And you can get out, tell people what your positions are. You can tell them, you know, you're pro-education or you're pro-scooch or whatever the issues of the day are. When judges run, uh, there is this thing called a code of judicial conduct, which would apply to judicial candidates. And so judges are limited on what she or he can can say out on a campaign trail. And I remember when I was running for the Supreme Court, for example, I was interviewed uh, uh, by a group uh, that wanted to ask me some questions before they recommended me, and, and I'm presumably, I guess, they interviewed my opponent then, too. But uh, after about the fourth question of me saying, you know, I can't answer that question based on the code of judicial conduct. And finally, the person asking the question said, said how's your mom and them doing? I said, mom is doing good. I'm glad you asked. And so judges are in a unique position. I mean, you you you, you run, um, but, you're, but based on the code of judicial conduct, it's, you have to be very familiar with it. Uh, and during each election cycle, there's a committee that's appointed, uh, lieutenant governor, the speaker of the house, the chief justice, and, um, they will make appointments to this group. And that group's purpose is to hear complaints. For example, if uh, a judge is running uh, uh, for re-election and perhaps uh, she's being challenged by a, uh, a lawyer and that lawyer is doing something that she thinks is inappropriate or vice versa. If the attorney believes the judge is, is using uh, the current office inappropriately, there's some rules out there that would apply. And so running for judge, uh, you have to be very familiar with the code of judicial conduct, the rules applicable to elections, and which include uh, rules regarding uh, raising money. Uh, legislators, executive branch, governor, they can have fundraisers. But when you run for judge, you have to have a committee. Judges uh, should not be asking for money themselves and so so forth. So there's a whole uh, uh, basket of rules that would, would be applicable to to judges and, and what they say and do on the campaign trail, but in addition, how funds are raised if, if they choose to raise funds. All right. Well, now it's just us. We're just here sitting sitting around talking, so I have a question. Maybe okay. it's a little delicate. You know, you mentioned uh, sometimes if there is a vacancy, a judge may be appointed. 
is there I don't know. Is there a wink that when someone uh, is is fin- is ready to finish their time as a judge rather than finishing serving out uh, the uh, time that they've been elected, that they would step aside so that their position could be filled by um, whoever is in in power so that they would be an incumbent when it comes time for elections? I, I have not seen that. Myself now, I can only speak to my my personal um, situation. When I was appointed chancery court judge, um, uh, the the chancellor had been there twenty six years and decided to retire, um, and I I submitted along with several others uh, to be considered. Uh, Governor Barber and Governor Bryant too, as, if I'm recalling this correctly, has a committee by which the, that committee screens to whether or not those candidates would would be qualified. But uh, but no, I, I have not seen that that occur. When I left, you know, joined the Ole Miss and, and left the Supreme Court, that did not occur. And so um, and so there's uh, I, I can speak for the governors that I've worked with. They all uh, have integrity, and they want to make sure that 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 they they appoint people that will will follow the law. And um, and so my experience has been positive in that respect. So I have not seen um, the cynical side of that. Uh, perhaps it question but um on a national level you know i I read with interest yesterday i think that uh ruth bader ginsburg's decided to go ahead and hire law clerks throughout 2020 which would put her possible retirement uh being post uh president trump's first uh term and so i can see where a united states supreme court justice would uh determine whether she or he Retired based on the philosophy of the sitting president, uh, and and you know you'd have to be naive to believe that that didn't happen. But uh, but but on the national level, I think that's that does come into play from time to time. But as far as my experience on the state level, I've never never experienced any anything uh, beyond what I've just discussed, and that is um, there's a vetting process that's used, and and the governor. Um, and I think if you look at Governor Barber's and Governor Bryant's appointments, um, all those individuals um, have been well qualified. Judge, you, you mentioned the uh, campaigning and the fact that a judge can't say political things and uh, because of the code of judicial conduct. Could an outside group uh, who wanted to support a particular candidate for judge uh, get involved in politics? Could they raise money and and put ads on TV and say, hey, this judge is too conservative, this judge is too liberal, vote for the other person. Is that – could they do that? Well, third parties, you know, they do. Um, based on a, a previous decision on the US, United States Supreme Court, there are third parties that get involved, and uh, and unfortunately the candidates uh, cannot control what those third parties do. And um, and uh, your, your hypothetical, though, is a kind one because oftentimes the third parties will – String together some uh, some decisions, maybe a sitting judge or justice has made uh, to create a narrative that, quite frankly, if you dig down deeper, that's not the narrative that exa- exactly happened. So that's the downside of judicial elections. You know, we could debate, and, and another good idea for a program in addition to child custody is whether it's a, you know a judge in Mississippi, particularly on the appellate level, should be appointed or elected, and uh, and so they both have. Good points and bad points, and and so that's uh, that would be a great uh, hour long discussion. I think, particularly this year with judicial elections going on, um, 
And so, but yeah, third parties, uh, you know, can be formed and are formed and do run ads and such in judicial elections. Well, you've heard uh, Justice Randy Pierce is quite candid and will answer any questions. So uh, when we come back from the break, we'd love to take your calls about uh, how our our judicial uh, officials are educated. All you have to do is give us a call. Our number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. I've also got our email open. The address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. You know, if you're listening to our show in the car or you're... uh, uh, and, and you are excited about listening to this program. If you can't finish it, maybe you're in the driveway, maybe you're in the grocery store parking lot, and you're going to miss some of us, please go to our website, mpbonline.org slash terms. Later this afternoon, I'll have the entire show put up so that you can listen to it. Or if you're someone who likes to listen to podcasts and you listen to them on your phone, uh, maybe at home or while while you're traveling in your car. You can also listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest today is uh, former, US, uh, former Mississippi Supreme Court Justice Randy Pierce, who's the director of the Mississippi Judicial College. And we're learning about how our judicial personnel are... Uh, educated. So, uh, Professor Gershon, are you sure we can't get you uh, to, to, to run for something? You know, I appreciate that, and I appreciate the sentiment. Um, you know, one thing that I'd be worried about is how, you know, how judges are disciplined when, when they are, because, uh, you know, there, there are, as uh, Justice Pierce mentioned, there is a code of judicial ethics. And, in fact, uh, law students are required to learn something about that. They, they have to take uh, an ethics exam called the multi-state professional responsibility exam that uh, includes judicial ethics on it, even though, you know, that's early in their careers. So, I mean, what, what about that? I, I'd be worried I'd be, you know, do something wrong and be disciplined. Well, the, as the Mississippi Rules of Court in, in every year, which is published on July, effective July 1, uh, there is a code of judicial conduct. If there is a complaint against the judge, it would go to the commission um, on judicial conduct. And that commission was formed in 1979, if I believe the legislature passed it, and the voters uh, amended our state constitution to provide for the Mississippi Commission on Judicial Performance. And so complaints go there. Uh, some complaints, you know, are, are meritless. Uh, the judges may not ever know that the complaint was made. Uh, you know, so, for example, if somebody has a bad result and, and, and they want to uh, file a 
a, you know, a, a, some type of complaint against the judge. The staff at the Commission on Judicial Performance would, would vet those. They have investigator an investigator there, attorneys there, and if they find that, you know, this one doesn't have merit, the judge wouldn't even know it ever had been filed. But if the judge is called to respond, then uh, then it goes from there. And if there is a violation, then the judicial the uh, Commission on Judicial Performance would then recommend to the Mississippi Supreme Court what uh, they propose the punishment ought to be, which could include some type of reprimand uh, or removal from office. And uh, it's important to point out that uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court has final say when it comes to whether or not a judge uh, is removed from the bench and or an attorney is disbarred. Uh, that's the process that, that has to be followed, whether a lawyer is reprimanded through the Mississippi Bar Complaint Tribunal process or a judge is reprimanded or, or punished through the uh, Commission on Judicial Performance. You know, I know the Bar does uh, statistics for lawyer discipline, especially the, the types of complaints that come in. And, and uh, the ones that are the greatest number of complaints are uh, not diligence, not, you know, uh, neglectful of the, uh, the client's file, uh, and uh, not communicating with the client. Are there similar statistics on judges? What kind of things get judges in trouble? Well, the, the, there are statistics, and, and I'm not going to get ahead of my skis and start throwing out numbers because I haven't looked at numbers sure. recently. Sure. Uh, but each year in April, we bring in Darlene Ballard, who's the current uh, leader of the commission, and she goes over those statistics with our judges. We also uh, bring those statistics before all of our judges. So judges like lawyers will know, you know what, this, these are the areas that you need to make sure that, that you don't want to follow the rules. Uh, so every year we bring those statistics. We bring representatives from the commission there to speak to our judges to make sure that, that the judges are aware. Uh, we don't want to, for example, the lawyer lack of communication is, is, is a huge one, always has been. And so uh, the bar does a really good job of trying to remind lawyers that, you know, this one can, can get you uh, at least having to respond to a bar complaint um, and uh, if you'll just communicate. So we do the same thing with our judges and making sure they're aware of not only what type of complaints but what judges you know, whether or not this complaint is more prevalent with circuit versus chancery and so forth. Well, we have one more call, one last call for our show for this hour from Calhoun County. We've got Dudley on the on the line. Go ahead, Dudley. I just really appreciate your topic this morning, but I have a question that I sometimes don't understand. If the Supreme Court rules on something and it becomes a law, I don't understand how a state can make a law that will go against that law or not abide by that law. I hope I'm making sense. Uh, Dudley, uh, good to hear from Calhoun County. I love when I drive to South Mississippi, taking a detour occasionally and going through Calhoun County. Um, you know, your question, I think, is is probably geared toward when the United States Supreme Court makes a decision and then individual states would pass laws. Based on the supremacy clause of the federal constitution, um, the federal law is going to trump uh, that state uh, action. And so, um, again, we're getting all kind of ideas for, for hour-long discussions, and we could get into that. But the, the short answer, uh, I hope, Dudley, uh, to your question is, is that when the federal uh, Supreme Court makes a decision. The states are bound by that decision. I appreciate that very much and appreciate the show so much, too. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're we're glad that you called in. So um, 
Justice Pierce, uh, you mentioned the Committee on Judicial Performance. Is that something that a lawyer or just an average person could go and look up to see what their recommendations are when someone has um, made a claim? Well, those claims are confidential based on based on our, our law, and the only time that a complaint against a judge would become public is once it gets to the Supreme Court and then it's handled and a decision is rendered at the Supreme Court, then it becomes public record. Um, I would point out, too, that there are – there's a – if you're interested – I love numbers. I'm a CPA, too, from days way back, um, and I love numbers. You can go to the Mississippi Supreme Court website, which is courts.ms.gov, and look under reports. And the latest report is from 2016. has tremendous statistics in there, Liz, about our courts, how many cases are heard each year, for example, in Chancery Court and in Circuit Court. Uh, for example, last year, Chancery Court, well, in 2016, the 17 report will be up soon. There were 67,000 cases filed in Chancery, over 50,000 in circuit, 27,000 in county. So there's statistics there, and there's a great discussion in that report about many different things that are involved in our court system. So I would encourage your, your listeners to, to access that report. Judge Pierce, I'm going to run, go do that just now because we are finished with our show. Thank you so much for coming on our show today. It was a pleasure. Uh, well, that'll wrap us up for today for In Legal Terms. All, our call screener for today's show has been Michelle McAdoo. Our board engineer in Jackson has been Jay White in Oxford. Tracy Daniel helps us out. For Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our Tuesday Southern Remedy show, relatively speaking. But we do hope you'll join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m., or in legal terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.